Hi everyone, welcome to In Brackets. In this episode, Willie Kennard III sits down with Joshua Bennett. Joshua teaches creative writing at Dartmouth College, and he's the author of The Sobbing School. His second book of poetry, Ode, is due out next year from Penguin Books. Joshua and Willie sit down to talk about finding poetry community and how to navigate the publishing industry as a poet. And it's taken us almost a year, but In Brackets is now available on Spotify and iTunes. So check us out, uh, search In Brackets and Spotify under podcasts or in the iTunes store and look for the green and white logo. All right, here's Willie Kennard III and Joshua Bennett. Hi, I'm Willie Kennard III, here with Joshua Bennett for In Brackets. Joshua is an assistant professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth College and is the author of The Sobbing School and Being Property Wants Myself, Blackness, and the End of Man. Joshua has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Ford Foundation, and the Society of Fellows at Harvard University. His second collection of poetry, Ode, is due out in 2020. Joshua, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure. You are easily one of, I could probably say, one of my writing influences. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. This, that came <laughs> from left and blessed me. You know? Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> it, is, it is a pleasure. Um, I think it's always interesting to get to know our guest poets. Yeah. Um, so instead of asking you where you're from, I'd like to ask you, where are you a local? Oh, <laughs> that first last fire. Uh, I'm, where am I a local? At Philadelphia, okay, West Philadelphia, um, it's one of my favorite cities in the world. I think I'm becoming, hopefully, a, a local of downtown Los Angeles. I just really like it. I love the food. I love the way it reminds me of the Bronx, but just with much better weather. Um, yeah, I'm also a local. Yeah, nah, not not really in Yonkers anymore. I haven't been there as much. So yeah, so I say downtown LA, West Philadelphia, and. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. A little bit of a variety in weather. Yeah, for sure. All De- over there. Definitely like a great taste in food, though. For sure. And elaborate <laughs> coats. Yes. Um, for the for the last one. You have to be. Um, as as a poet, you know that poet poetry, like most art, right, requires an obsession, like a steady returning to things. Yeah. Um, is there a word or a subject that you're obsessed with at the moment, or like you find yourself continually returning to? Kinship for sure um both sort of blood kin i write about my family a great bit um but also what ties people together beyond blood beyond the law um my best friend devin we've been best friends for 15 years and we're still sort of trying to figure out what that means we owe each other or how we take care of each other in a world that militates against that kinship for all sorts of reasons for us as black men from poor families trying to be writers um, and have other day jobs that are related to that, but not really, so. Definitely. Yeah. As a poet and performer, because you also perform, and I could argue that you perform masterfully. Mm-hmm. Thank <laughs> um, you. You've grown up in several poetry communities, and pu- mm-hmm. yeah, multiple poetry communities, yeah, including Brave New Voices, yeah. The Strivers Row, mm-hmm. and honestly hustle and flow like is one of like an interesting community to grow mm-hmm. up in but how did you find and solidify your poetry family and what role did those communities serve yeah i mean i tried to always start with friendship in any of those places so even the strivers row for example 
started based on a G-chat conversation I had with my sister when I was living in England. I was on a fellowship called the Marshall Scholarship, studying theater and performance. And uh, we just started talking about what it would mean to start like a poetry squad. Uh, what would it mean to have a poetry band, a poetry collective, and to have it be composed of people that I performed with in the past, people I competed against in SLAM, um, just to travel together and see what happened. So I called everybody up. I called Miles, Zora, Carve, Alicia, mm -hmm. um, and asked if they wanted to join up, and we did. Um, Brave New Voices, I think, was much the same. I mean, Alicia was also on my Brave New Voices team, uh, the Philly team. Uh, she was on Poetry Slam teams with me through Cupsy, right, the college Poetry Slam. And so for me, I think I had the great blessing of always sharing the stage with people that I cared about off of it. Um, I think that made a, a big difference in terms of my ability to trust those people, um, but also hopefully to take the work to the next level. So I think I was able to find and solidify my space in poetry communities in part by having it not be reducible to the work, my presence there, um, or at least not the work on the page or stage, right? I think there was always the understanding that what we were doing was, um, it was political, but it was also spiritual and communal, right? That we didn't just get up to recite poems because they were pretty, but because we believed we were creating other worlds and the potential for other worlds when we gathered together, so. Definitely understandable. Now that you mentioned like just the magic that kind of happens in yeah. like performance. Um, one of my favorite pieces of yours that honestly is probably one of the pieces that inspired me to return to writing like mm. an undergrad. I was a studio art major. Oh wow. So graphic design, all of those things. It's almost a different world. Yeah. But one of your pieces, uh, Balo and Uptera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I saw a video of you performing it at mm. Claiming Williams. And mm. honestly, it's this nerdy meditation on love and the heart of lives of blue whales. And in a moment where so much work was focused on police brutality and black mm. trauma and masculinity, I found it radical and empowering to like hear you as a black man write so fondly and tenderly about love. Mm. You were firm like, but soft at the same time. How do you feel about presenting a more emotionally intelligent masculinity in your work? I think it's the I think it's the diegetic music of all my work, right? Like I think in the background I'm always thinking about black masculinity as this um this space that that is something we're always cultivating together as we're under attack, right? Um that there was always a doubleness to it. So in the new book I have this poem called Barber Song, right? Which is about clearly like all the the problems that emerge in the barbershop, but also the barbershop as the first place where you learn to ask someone to make you beautiful, right? Um, at least for me, the first space where like another black man held my face or like came to know how I like to look, what I like to listen to. We got to argue about boxing or football or, you know, the greatest black actors and writers ever. Like it was this also very robust um, discursive space in all these ways that were important. And so for me, I just want to present a black masculinity that's as complex as the life I've lived and mm -hmm. the life I've seen other people lived, right? Like my father uh, is a Vietnam War vet. My father used to physically fight people when I was growing up. My father also bathed me um, and my sister and my brother. You know, he also would, you know, put cocoa butter on us, you know, and make sure we had Vaseline and that we were dressed well. He would make us breakfast and he taught me to scramble eggs, right? Those are all part of the same man who also integrated his high school and survived unfathomable violence, but still had a tenderness to him that the world denied, right? And so I think part of why I appreciate you talking about the, the tenderness of that Blay and Atera poem is because for me, that's just, you know, that's how I see the world. Like it is, it is love. It is, um, love is all that allows us to survive that brutality, right? That black social life is terror, but of course it's also love. It's tenderness, it's courage, it's joy. And 
So in all my poetry, I have to tell that story. Otherwise, it's just trauma that I'm recapitulating for an audience that's not composed of people that love me. Do you know what I mean? Like we know who Definitely. that who that work is for. Like we we know that the forces that constrain black writing to just that kind of view, um, it's in the sake of something that's not for black people. Uh, and I'm just not interested in that. I, I think I didn't realize that I was starting to get kind of sucked into that or that I saw the field getting taken that way. And um, it just didn't make sense to me. That, that wasn't how I grew up. I grew up around living real black people and they were not sad all the time. They were not really that sad at all. <laughs> like they, they were complex, living complex lives. So. I definitely appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I am also currently like working on like a, an interesting suite of like haircuts and barbershops. Yeah, and, it's yeah. important. It is, like even as a bald man, or like yeah. like that that care that a barber takes care of your head. Yeah, like my barber, interestingly, like saved my hairline for mm. years before I realized I was thinning, and I'm like, oh god, like I love you for all of these. Yeah, things. come on, <laughs> right? You're like a physician of a certain kind. And a therapist, and you know my brother or uncle or something, you right? Know? So, it's a beautiful thing. But transitioning to your upcoming work, yeah, your yeah, second yeah. collection of poems, yeah. Ode, Ode, will be published by Penguin Books. Yeah, in twenty twenty. Shout out. <laughs> um, can you tell us what we can expect from your upcoming collection and about your experience navigating the publishing industry mm. as a contemporary poet? Yeah, yeah, great question. Really knocking it out the park. Um, yeah, what can we expect? Celebration. You know, I mean, I think the the first book certainly has its, its pockets, its windows, its moments of joy, mm -hmm. you know, because that's my commitment philosophically and otherwise. But I think Ode is more explicitly celebratory, especially of spaces, objects, voices that I was taught to denigrate um, as a boy and especially as someone who entered elite white space at a fairly young age and never really left. Right. So I have poems in there about ankle weights, about do-rags, about high-top fades, or I'm thinking about hoops, right? Both hoops, like basketball hoops, but also earring hoops, right? Um, which are, you know, it's black aesthetic par excellence in some ways, right? Um, so that, that book, the new book is about that. It's also about reparation as a thematic, right? Not just thinking about sort of um, economic reparations, but really thinking about how can black poetry be a mode of reparation? How can we speak repair, speak life, speak reimagination, over places we were taught um, were nothing at all, nothing worth thinking about, nothing worth writing about, did not rise to the level of, uh, of poetry, right? So you can expect that from the second book, some bars in there. Um, what else can you expect, I guess? Hopefully great beauty, you know? I mean, that, that's what I'm always working on is just trying to really sit with the, the beautiful poem even when the historical materials are ugly. So that's important. How have I navigated the, the publishing world? Uh, hopefully with, with gratitude, always with great awe. You know, I sent off my National Poetry Series submission like a day before the deadline at the FedEx Kinko's, you know, one sixteenth and Broadway. It's like right across the street from Columbia. I just sort of ran in there. I printed it off the wrong way twice in a row, and they just let me slide on the price for the third one. And Eugene Gloria, you know, picked it up for the National Poetry Series. And it was sort of an incredible moment. Um, I found out via Facebook message that I won. Wow. Because I think they'd been trying to reach me, but I don't know that I put my contact info on there properly. So they wrote me on Facebook like, hi, Joshua, reaching out to you from the National Poetry Series. Please give me a call at this number when you get the chance. And I called and they said, you know, your book's going to come out with Penguin. Um, my editor, Paul Slovak over there is, you know, brilliant, generous. You know, he also edits, you know, Terrence Hayes' work and, and a lot of other folks in the field. And he's just been immensely supportive of my career. Uh, let me pick my cover art, you know. Um, I sent him some new cover art for the second book. 
two days ago. Um, and so now we're in conversation about that. And part of how I've just tried to navigate it all is to always publish toward an end, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I have a book coming out, I'm trying to do something with it. I want to create community around it. I want to create conversations. I want it to go as far as I can. So I'm trying to do a lot more on the audio book front with this next book, just so the book can move internationally in different ways. Um, and then finally, I wanted to be part of a conversation um, in the academy and elsewhere about just what, how we can think these categories together in more robust ways. That the poetry is not just for, for reading or for sitting with, but I think it also should produce something materially. It should produce moments um, and memories for people. It should give people instruments for living, which is part of what I'm trying to do. Instruments for living. I am going to write it down at some point in time. Oh, thank you. Because I definitely need it. <laughs> Come on. We all do. <laughs> um, speaking of words that we need, though, there is this beautiful capacity for poetry to kind of work as a living mantra for both poets and non-poets. Yeah. Um, do you find any any words or any lines of poetry that like you consistently return to? I know for me, it's like a mix between Gwendolyn Brooks, like the Sermon on the Warpland. Yeah. Specifically that line, say the river turns and turns the river. Just like the power yeah. that happens in that yeah, thing yeah, of yeah. like being able to say that this thing does a thing. And now you have the capacity to like let it be a thing yeah. that you want it to be. Yeah. Ah, uh, there are so many. Um, so a couple are from Drew Jordan, right? Mm-hmm. So one is from her poem on a New Year's Eve, right? She ends by saying, all things are dear that disappear. All things are dear that disappear. And another line from her that rhymes, but is from a, a sonnet of hers. And it's, um, and there are stars, but none of you to spare. Right, and I, I just think a ton, especially while I'm sitting with, with June Jordan's work about how we value each other, you know, and the ways that we're taught to think about, especially now to talk about disposability, cancellation, incarceration, ways that we're taught to eradicate one another. But it's like there's there's none of us to spare. <laughs> we have to really, really think about um, how we can comport ourselves with mercy um, and forgiveness and thoughtfulness um, and grace. I mean, I think I'm really coming back to these sort of fundamentally religious categories um, as I get older, in ways that shocked me, I, I really sort of walked away from the church in my in my early twenties, and I think what's what's brought me back to a lot of that language and to those sorts of spaces is um, is my deep need to find a a more capacious version of human social life, a better way we can treat one another, um, no matter what your grammar is for the religious or the spiritual. I just mean like how do you treat someone else with decency, and what's the language you can marshal toward it. So, those are two lines that come to mind. I got others, but. Some of those joints are kind of heavy, so we can come back <laughs> later in the in the interview. I mean, one is Ann Carson, uh, Hurts to Be Here. Wow. I just think about that line all the time because it's true, <laughs> but also it's, um, I don't think that line shuts off conversation either. Like just because it, it hurts to be here, that doesn't mean it's it's unmanageable or, or can't be survived. In fact, that's, that's so much of what we've survived is the fact that it, it hurts to be here. You know, that's what love sustains us through. Um, and so I've been trying to find a way in the poems and elsewhere to sit with both of those things um, and not throw either one out. Definitely words and lines to either tattoo on you somewhere or to stick in a sticker on the back of your MacBook. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we need that. Better stickers. Um, thinking of like the writing process, mm-hmm. a little bit of a transition, but right, you fine. talked about peace and you talked about grace. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important, especially like as a working writer and a working poet trying to make things in the world. What does an ideal Joshua Bennett writing environment look mm. like? 
there's got to be some seafoam green in there somewhere. It's just one of my favorite colors. So my laptop desk is seafoam green, and also my guitar is seafoam green. So I keep that in the corner. Um, what else is in there? Snacks. I love dried fruit. I love mission figs. And what else? Dried pineapple, of course. Dried apricot. Dried mango. No extra sugar on it. Just like, just, just dried mango. It's important. B12 riboflavin. Um, what else is in my ideal environment? Come on, nutrition. No, it's important. <laughs> Yo, come on. Fruits and vegetables all day, all day. Uh, Taishan, sorry. Like, yeah, definitely some contemporary, like, jazz playing somewhere. I'm probably on a bed. Um, I haven't written at desk that much recently. I mean, I have an office now, which is a little surreal, um, in the English department at Dartmouth. Um, but I, I love to write in bed, like, just the, the comfort of that. Um, yeah, that's my ideal writing environment, just where there's comfort, music, delicious foods, vibrant colors. Yeah. Vibrant colors. Vibrant colors. My sister, when I was growing up, she had this teal sort of Columbia winter jacket that I stole when she moved out of the house, and it's still just my favorite coat I've probably ever owned. Actually, I got another coat that's kind of ill. It's this red and black like hunting jacket with the collar. That's It's, it's fire. I'll send a picture to the... The podcast folks that definitely sounds like a dr strange s coat nah it's clean it's going, it definitely <laughs> is at the collar level it's up there you know so ah uh, that's so dope um yeah, we're in the end game now hey yeah, yeah. <laughs> um what have you learned as a poet that's writing that's working what have mm. you learned in between writing book one and book two what have I learned? I mean, one, again, man, I'm just going to come back to some of these touchstones. I mean, one, to have grace for myself in the writing process um, is that there are poems that are going to take you years, um, and there are poems that maybe will come to you in a sitting, and you have to allow yourself to be overwhelmed, um, even in the midst of great difficulty, you know, um, and to get, leave space for, for both of those possibilities. What else have I learned? That it's okay to turn to the joy as a source. I just didn't feel comfortable doing that for a long time. Even when that book was out, I felt the need to bear witness to the carnage in a very specific voice a fair amount of the time. And now I think I give myself far more space to attend to small moments, um, to small memories. Um, one of the poems in this book is called America Will Be, my next book. And it's about eating breakfast at IHOP with my father um, and the conversations about you know, the nation state it sort of emerged from those conversations. And to me, the, those will always be moments that are worthy of poetry. So that's what I've learned to sort of expand my vision on the one hand. Um, I've always, I, I've tried to read widely in my practice, but really to turn to places like, like A.R. Ammons, for instance, and draw inspiration um, from that for my, my black life, you know, <laughs> like really to always just turn to a, a wide range of sources um, to pull meaning and language, you know, so I've, I've learned that too. I like the business of turning towards happier things yeah. that you seem to continually radiate and that I'm basically going to take with me for the rest of my time at this program and like as the rest of my <laughs> time you, as brother. an artist. Um, thinking of this first book, one of your first projects, I'm thinking of Algorithm and Blues was yeah, self-published. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so published. Yeah. Through blurb.com. Yeah, yeah, blurb.com. Shout out. 
I had like a very tiny project that I also published. Hey, okay, okay, so okay. I I know that language and I know that lane. Yeah. Um, but as an author coming out of a big press like like Penguin now, yeah. um, what were your experiences in self publishing, and mm. what advice do you have for folks looking to possibly self publish, or any pros and any cons, any things to stay with? Yeah, I mean, get the workout in whatever medium feels good. I mean, I think. I sent manuscripts all over the place, you know, um, for for the Penguin book, for what eventually became the Penguin book. And I think coming from a spoken word background, I saw people publishing, self-publishing chapbooks that they printed out at Staples 20 minutes before. It sold 100 copies of those things because they killed it during the reading, right? So I think it depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, for me, part of why it's important to have the book come out through that kind of press is that I'm trying to to interrupt something like I think I'm, I'm trying to interrupt a very specific vision of American literary poetry you know in, in quotations and having the book come out on, on Penguin I think does useful work in that way but I think there's a multiplicity of ways to to get the work out so I mean the cons of course are, are just reach right if you self-publish like I think publishing with Penguin too has helped open professional and other doors I mean the work can move in different places but we have the internet I mean when we had the internet in 2016 but is still is a different game now like when algorithm blues came out you know so you For can sure. if you have an audience built in put it out in whatever way you want to um and then i think the presses will come right like if you if you put the book out and it gets a really sort of strong reception i think these these companies are, are pretty well attuned to that um but yeah whatever moves you and whatever feels good and true to your vision maintain control to the best way you can like i'm really thankful too that i have a team at penguin that one let me pick the cover of my book, but also the the content. I mean, it didn't really cut much. They were like, look, is this the book you want to put out? And I was like, absolutely. Right, these are the poems I want. This is how I want them to appear. It is the order. These are the people I want to write my blurbs. <laughs> it was, I just said, look, this is, you know, it's my project. Um, and they gave me that space. And so also just in the name of having a publisher put your work out, don't ever lose control of it, um, of how you want it to be rolled out, any of that stuff, or the language that's used to promote it. You know, be in control of as much of that as you can because it's your vision that belongs to you. That's really insightful and also, like, really, really helpful. Mm. Like, as a poet, like, an emerging poet working through presses, submissions, literary yeah. magazines and things, it can get daunting, but that is super encouraging. Yeah. Um, piggybacking off of that a little bit, you talked about the reach. Yeah. And, like, as coming out of a spoken word background, yeah. I did, like, a small bit in undergrad. And I'm thinking about the differences that kind of happens between sometimes the academic space and yeah. then like the stage. Yeah. And how that resonates differently. Do you find that it hits differently, for mm. lack of better words, but do you find that it resonates differently with the poets and mm. or the audience, like in between those two spaces? The spoken word stuff? Yeah. Or, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, well, it depends. It depends on what kind of audience you're speaking to, but... Just in my history, they're supposed to do different work, but they don't have to. Like in my personal history, I've always thought that they were supposed to do different work. But I don't think they have to. The more I look back, especially to the, the like 60s and 70s, and I revisit sort of like Baraka and Giovanni and Sanchez and listen to that audio, I'm like, they were pretty, I mean, they were coming off page, but the stuff hit. So I think a lot of it is just reading like you care about your work, which I think fell out of fashion for whatever reason in a lot of literary circles and i think now it's coming back because you have such a strong uh cohort and collective of folks that 
really cut our teeth in spoken word as, as teenagers and young adults, and now have made our way to publishing books. So I think now you're seeing a much stronger push around performance that I think is important. Um, and I think we'll, we'll only serve to broaden the audience because it, it doesn't have to be that kind of strong bifurcation. You can be someone whose work dances beautifully on the page um, and also works when read aloud. I mean, a lot of my spoken word stuff, I didn't write it for the page. It doesn't live primarily there. Um, and the same is true in reverse. But there are definitely these sort of hybrid poems as well that I think um, can bounce back and forth. You know, they're, they're children of many worlds. And, you know, to pull something from Césaire, like I tried to make them to the measure of the world. Right, which which of course dances in that space between the you know the sign and, and the spoken. So I hope that helps. But yeah, that that's what that's how I feel. I feel like the spoken word stuff just gives you a set of tools um, that you have to be able to use if you're going to do readings at all. Definitely thinking of like that and like voice and just like the the mastery that one has of voice. Yeah. Um, how do you, or rather, to reword this. For voice, yeah. for finding your own voice, do you yeah. have any words of encouragement or any words of advice on like attending to the personal voice and not letting it be distracted by the things that you're reading? Mm. I don't think the things you're reading can ever really detract from your voice necessarily, unless you're thinking about your readings as necessary guideposts or controls. And I would always sort of caution folks against that. I think we read together sort of equipment to enhance our voice, right? Um, and to do the kind of work we want to do um, in the most engaging and compelling way and often, I think, charismatic way possible. Like, you need those other voices, I think, to amplify you. So the advice I would give is to read widely, but also listen widely, listen to a bunch of different kind of music, and read across genre. Like, read fiction, read sermons. You know, figure out how people have always figured out this space between sort of the, the movement of language on a page and the way it should sound for a crowd. Um, and I think that's probably your best bet reading genre reading fiction reading sermons mm -hmm. so many cross genre things yeah yeah read theory read all that stuff if you were a another musician or another artist in a different type of field which ideally i guess in a parallel universe would you find yourself being i'd be an experimental r&b musician that's so incredible <laughs> yeah 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 play guitar and hopefully sound like donnie or d'angelo those would be my dreams well thank you so much for your time no thank you for everything here like your your encouragement even this the sly ass suit that you currently have blessings on, it, it's, <laughs> it is radiating great um lastly i guess before we go yeah if you had to sum up joshua bennett joshua mm. brandon bennett, ah, go ahead go in on. three words <laughs> three words which would you pick learning um hold on this is this is messing me up learning trying possible learning trying possible yeah joshua bennett everyone thank you thank you thanks for tuning in to in brackets the literary podcast of hot metal bridge a very special thank you to joshua bennett and willie Kennard, and to josh corson for production help with this episode i'm avery keatley in brackets is going on hiatus this summer so we will be back in september for a very special episode with wesley morris so thank you all for coming along for the ride and we will see you in september take care